I was out of town over the weekend to see my granddaughter, and I can't believe when I drove back into Cleveland, it was snowing in May. Heavy-duty snow. What is going on in Cleveland weather? It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Layla Tassi. Jane Cahoon is off for the week. We'll have some other visitors in her place. Happy Monday, Laura and Layla. Happy hey, Monday. Happy Monday. Did you like that snow, Laura? You had a first communion and a big family first gathering on Mother's Day. First communion, Mother's Day. I, I feel like you are owed some sunshine and nice weather on Mother's Day. But no. Um, but at least I don't feel like I'm missing anything. I had foot surgery like a week ago. And so like I wasn't like, oh, I want to play tennis. I want to plant my garden. So it kept me inside <laughs> without I wishing you got a, I were outside. But you got a lot of good outdoor photos of your daughter in her communion dress, right? Oh, yeah. One one of her, a video of her twirling on the porch might be my favorite because, you know, the way the dress flips up. So, yeah. There you go. All right. Let's begin. What was unusual about the way Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson announced he would not seek an unprecedented fifth term? Leila Tassi, so much about Frank Jackson is unusual for politicians. <laughs> but this was odd in so many ways. Yeah, I'm not uh, sure I, what was the most unusual aspect of this. I mean, it could be that he struck this sort of melancholy tone in reflection of his 16 years in office or or the fact that he took phone calls during the event uh, from, from people sort of singing his praises or also that there was some kind of video paying tribute to him and, and that actor Samuel L. Jackson appeared in it. <laughs> so which of those is most unusual? I don't know. But um, so Jackson, he made this announcement at one of his town hall meetings last week. And what I found really interesting is that when he decided to run for the unprecedented fourth term, he said it was because there was this unfinished business and he wanted to see the schools through their transformation. And he wanted to make sure that the community was benefiting from the city's prosperity. That was always his highest priority. And he had always said, you know, we're not a great city yet. And he wanted to usher in that era. And this time he sounded as if he was sort of resigning to the fact that he just won't be the mayor when the city achieves greatness. And he was sad to acknowledge that violence has persisted and that institutionalized racism and inequities have stood in the way of all of his best efforts. But he concluded by saying that this is a relay race, not a sprint. Not, not that I would consider 16 years in office a sprint, but <laughs> whatever, <laughs> I get his point. You know, he's handing off the torch is what he's saying. Um, so then he took some phone calls, mostly from people who had a lot of, you know, not great things to say about him and, and thanked him for his time. And um, and yeah, it was uh, an unusual event, but I'm not sure how one goes about making that kind of announcement uh, that well, they're most, not seeking another term. <laughs> most people would get up and and brag about a long, boring list of accomplishments. That, I mean, that's the way most politicians would go out. Look at all I did. And you're right. There was a melancholy, almost a a resignation that he didn't get there. Although the falsity of that is that this isn't about the destination. It's about the journey. You never get there. Cleveland fought. It had arrived after it had the gateway built and the, we had some new stadiums and everybody said, okay, Cleveland's back. And then we went into, you know, 10 years of, of kind of falling apart. You know, it, you, you never get there. You're never the great city. You're always striving to be the great city. But there was no acknowledgement of that. I, 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 it was, you know, I wanted to get rid of violence and I didn't get rid of the violence. And, you know, I, I, there's more work to do. I did think the tribute video 
was bizarre because you don't make a tribute video to yourself. You just, it's an odd thing to do. And I, what I, what I read into that is that he's worried about whether he'll have a legacy, which is silly. He will, he's the longest serving mayor in Cleveland. Lots that happened during his time, the consent decree with the police. So many mayors had tried to improve the police department and none did. It was probably Mike White's most you know, difficult challenges he didn't accomplish. And he did. And he, you know, he got a bunch of other things going and he got the city through the great recession. There's still lots to do. The schools moved ahead a bit and, and residents appreciate that. But again, long journey to go. I just, I, I thought it was so fitting with the kind of politician he is, you know, he's not this outgoing extravagant politician that stands in front of people and demands credit. I mean, compare him to Armin Buders who wants credit for everything, even stuff he has nothing to do with, or compare him to Horrigan down in Akron, who was constantly putting himself in front of people, uh, a, a self-deprecating kind of announcement. And then talking to residents, it was the strangest thing. One resident after another, just calling the chat with the mayor, it, it, just so unusual. Yeah, maybe the the video was uh, his, you know, communications department's way of counterbalancing his self-deprecating speech. Because <laughs> you can't just go out with us with with that kind of tone. You need to have some kind of a little bit of uh, self-aggrandizement, and it's not in his nature. So someone had to put that video together. <laughs> it's yeah, it's like doing your own eulogy, man. It's yeah. just bizarre. You got to leave that stuff to others to do before it's over well he'll you know he said he's got work to do he's not going away he'll be working for the next seven months but his big fear is the minute he made that announcement he'd be a lame duck and that, that's going to happen with every passing day he's closer to the end and and we'll have less influence on the process we'll have to see where things go next you're listening to this week in the cle why is it likely that a congressional district in cleveland where black voters have made up the majority will cease to have that minority majority after next year. Laura Johnston, it's been more than a half century since that district has had more black voters than white voters, something that that gave pride to, to black voters. Why does that change? This is a fascinating story in, by Sabrina Eaton. It's all due to redistricting. And I learned so much from the story that it was a 1960 Supreme Court decision that established this pr principle of one person, one vote that civil rights attorney Louis, Louis Stokes brought that actually created this um, district. And the judges ruled in their favor. And Stokes ended up representing this district created then for 15 terms. Then Stephanie Tubbs Jones, then Marsha Fudge. Originally, Ohio had 24 congressional districts when that started. Now we're, we're going to be down to 15. And currently, the district includes a swath of African-American neighborhoods in Akron. If you look at the way it's drawn, you know, it goes through Richfield just to get to Akron. Um, but when it's redrawn, the requirements that voters approved in 2018 means the district has to be entirely in Cuyahoga County and that Cleveland can't be split among multiple districts. At least they try not to. So it's, it's going to be difficult to create a majority black district, even though they will make up a sizable percentage of the new district, you know, this is all, we're all pontificating because this hasn't been done, but Sabrina talked to a lot of experts and looked at the data and it looks pretty likely. You mean speculating? Yes. No, yeah. Pontificating. That's, that's <laughs> sorry. Okay. Uh, so couldn't the same legal forces come into play here? Couldn't people go to court and say, Hey, 
you know, we have a Supreme Court precedent that says this has to be done this way and they're they're blowing it up. Couldn't this result in a legal challenge saying that you basically are taking the vote away from black voters? Absolutely. And so I think we've got to see what happens with the districts being redrawn first before there is a court challenge. But, um, you know, we talked or we Sabrina talked to Nina Turner, who um, I believe is running for that district. She talked to Catherine Turser and that any district that's created is going to be scrutinized to ensure that it complies with this act. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did any Ohio Republicans involved in the vote to censure Congressman Anthony Gonzalez for his vote to impeach Donald Trump have the courage to vote no and stand with Gonzalez? Leila Tassi, I I am positive that history will not look kindly on this period and how people have reacted to the president's claims the votes were stolen from him and his advocating the the uh, the insurrection in the Capitol. I, it's just st- boggling my mind how many elected leaders are standing with Trump and doing this. I know. I agree. Uh, so so in this case, it sounds like uh, I mean, yeah, the vast majority are, are are standing with Trump. Senator Rob Portman and Governor Mike DeWine are on Gonzalez's side. DeWine has said he thinks that Gonzalez was voting his conscience and and that we should be supportive of that. And Portman said that while he disagrees with Gonzalez's support of impeachment, he thinks Gonzalez is a dedicated public servant. So the resolution that Ohio Republicans passed calls on Gonzalez to resign and claims he betrayed his constituents and demonstrated a hidden vendetta against Trump and relied on his emotions rather than the will of his constituents and any credible facts. I, I can't believe we're talking about credibility in, in regards to this. Um, it, and, and so before it passed, there was this lengthy debate. Some central committee members worried that it would have a chilling effect on Republicans voting their conscience in the future. And, and you know, they the, it passed anyway. And they also voted to censure him, as you said, so the wording is similar to a petition that uh, garnered 5,000 signatures, including Josh Mandel and Jane Timken, who are vying for the Senate seat that Rob Portman will soon vacate. Timken initially supported Gonzalez's decision to vote for impeachment, and then she changed her tune after she started taking heat from pro-Trump Republicans like Mandel. And Mandel says Gonzalez should be eradicated from the Republican Party. It's so harsh. Uh, Gonzalez has said that He was compelled to support impeachment because Trump helped organize and incite a mob that attacked the United States Congress and abandoned his post while many members asked for help, thus further endangering all present. I mean, that nails it. That is exactly how he should have uh, thought of the the uh, uh, what happened on that day. And and man, I just hope that this guy can can stand strong and. Um, he's pretty popular in his district. You know, it stretches from Rocky River to Worcester. Last year, he handedly won re-election with 63% of the vote. I don't think he should worry too much about this and absolutely should not bend under the pressure and try to issue some sort of apology for his impeachment vote. You know? Oh, I, I think he's got too much character for that. I don't think I he's hope so. I hope so. He's got integrity. What's heartbreaking is how many people have bought this nonsense. I wrote a column a few weeks ago that mentioned the 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 lie that trump told about winning the election that that it would you know he's just he's made that up and it's not true and that we're about the truth and i got not an insignificant number of emails from people saying 
you know, Mr. Quinn, that's your truth. My truth is that he no. won the election. And it's like, there is no two truths oh here. There's one truth. But <laughs> it's like, but this is Laura Johnston truthiness. Remember, wasn't that Bush that came up with that? But they're buying, <laughs> I forgot they're, about that. They're, they're not using any powers of independent thought to look at it. They're using this twisted, warped logic to convince themselves that the election was stolen when that is an absolute falsehood that it's just not true it's been demonstrated it's not true he lost he lost big he lost the popular vote big he lost the electoral vote big but there is this not insignificant number of people that are buying this nonsense and that's who these shameful republicans who voted to censure gonzalez are trying to appeal to it's just a sad day in our country that that kind of thing is going on right now. And okay. I feel bad for Gonzalez. And I, I, God, I hope that guy wins next year just as to, to push back against this wave of, of cowardice that can, has taken over his my, party. Can I mm-hmm. say, I just feel like this shows the cracks with the primary system, right? Like that a moderate who could garner votes from both sides is being punished because they're not appealing to the very basis of the base. Yeah, de- what what the Democrats ought to do is get a candidate ready there, because if if this works and they they get a Trump style crazy person to run in the Republican side, then a Democrat in that district could could win. We have to see how the district is redrawn mm-hmm. with redistricting. But it's a shame because Gonzalez is one of the freshest political personalities we've seen. You could see him as governor. You could see him as senator. He's a guy that really is trying to solve problems and work with the other party. And he's got this wave of absolute nonsense by people who are afraid to stand up independently mm. away from Donald Trump. It's just cowardice in the extreme. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is NOACA's 30-year plan for spending the expected $13.4 billion it would get for transportation needs in Northeast Ohio? Laura Johnston, a lot of this money is prescribed. You got to take care of the highways. You got to take care of certain uh, public transit ideas. But they've got ideas that are aimed at the future. Yeah, this looks 30 years in the future, which is more, you know, longer than they normally look. And they're trying to balance the need for traditional roads with the needs of the environment and other modes of transportation. The public can still make comments on this plan. And there is this rising emphasis on social, racial, economic, and environmental equity. It's called ENEO 50, and then E stands for equity. So there are a lot of things that this will do, but it will obviously improve the roads. 86% is spending on maintaining existing systems, 13% on enhancements, and 1% on expanding capacity. It's going to add um, an unspecified number of electric vehicle charging stations across its five-county regions, 926 miles of bike lanes and all-purpose trails, and 11,170 pedestrian safety projects, including curb upgrades and safety uh, pedestrian signals. So uh, we've talked about this before. There's redesigning of three interchanges is on this plan. But um, yeah, it looks it looks why wider than just you know your interstates. The the making this a much more bike friendly region would be a positive because it's still very dangerous for people to ride bikes around here with all the texting drivers. I hope uh, I hope they do some more investment in that. The uh, charging station uh, idea 
you know, what's interesting about that is I drove to North Carolina and back this weekend. And if I were an electric vehicle, it would have taken way longer because I would have had to stop for eternal periods to recharge the batteries. I just don't see how that's going to work for people who take long trips. But we'll see what happens in the future. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why is the Cleveland Housing Court warning renters who could not pay their rent during the pandemic that they soon could be thrown out of their homes? Layla Tassi, we did not have the expected wave of evictions, but it seems like we still could. Yes. You know, federal judge just ruled that the CDC lacks the power to enact that sweeping moratorium on eviction for non-payment of rent during the pandemic. And the, mator- the moratorium wasn't set to expire until June 30th. The court's ruling is under appeal and a judge will soon decide if the eviction moratorium can be enforced while that appeal is pending. But that answer might be no, which means that families will no longer be protected from eviction starting as soon as May 17th. So Cleveland Housing Court Judge Monet Scott issued a statement reminding tenants that they're responsible for their rent and if they want to avoid eviction, they better either work out an agreement with their landlord or voluntarily move. And, you know, I said this last week, I feel that the the answer to this problem is to consider universal housing vouchers. Um, you know, federal government always pays the rent and it's directly deposited in the landlord's bank account. And I, I just think that that's the, that's the direction that the country needs to go. Well, that's not going to solve the immediate problem. Armin Budish, the Cuyahoga County executive, did turn around within a day and say he's going to try and put 10 more million dollars from the stimulus into helping renters they've already no, put I that's think, great. 10 million in i think they did two at least two bouts of five million it could be more but he immediately said okay uh, you know if evictions are coming i'm going to get 10 million more through the county council that people could get qualified to up to a year of assistance and that's possibly great. 15 months so credit to armin budis for trying to head off this trend as well that's great you know, that's great yeah. yeah, the county council has to approve it, but uh, but I Budish has been had a bead on the on the renting situation since the beginning of the pandemic and has steered a lot of that money in that direction. Although Laura Johnson, that can't be used in the city, right? Right, because they have separate because it makes so much sense. Although, the, the, but the fact is, Cleveland is part of the county. There's no rules against using that ten million to help people that are in the city as well. I, I, I does Except anybody they know? They got their own, right? Cleveland you know, does, got their own money. Does anybody know how much Cleveland has put into it, though? I mean, we know what Armin Budish has put into it because he keeps sending out press releases. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get Frank Jackson's people on that then. Okay, okay, we'll know then at the end of his term. You're listening to this week at the CLE. All right, let's uh, let's get Laura Johnston wound up. Why did a Rocky River school tax <laughs> fail with voters last week? I cannot say with certainty why, but there are two possible contributing factors. And I should note that all of Cuyahoga's tax increases failed last week. Statewide, about half the school taxes failed. But in Rocky River, this was the first time it's failed since 2012. The increase aimed to cover operational tasks, current building operations, buy some new buses. And what we were really excited about is add the capacity to have cafeterias in the elementary schools. Wow. Yeah, I know. We don't have that here. Yeah. Um, Rocky River doesn't know what kind of cuts they'll have to make. I don't know if they didn't contemplate failing or they just have to narrow it down. But so 
Ahead of the primary election, some Rocky River parents wrote a letter to the superintendent, Michael Schoaf, and the school board worried about the diversity education in the schools. They said they want to support the goal and obligation of not discriminating, but they objected to this idea of critical race theory. And the thing is, the district's diversity program doesn't teach critical race theory, so I don't know where they were getting this. And like the way it's put into practice, and they work with the Diversity Center of Northeast Ohio, at Goldwood Primary School, students learn how words and actions can positively or negatively affect others. Like, I think that's a pretty great goal. But (laughs) there was this robocall from this Portage County Tea Party head, Tom Zaustowski, telling people that we were going to spread communism and indoctrinate racism in your children and grandchildren with hatred of white people. And so they needed to vote no. So this happened the day before the election. And then, of course, we've talked about on this podcast before, there's obviously the teacher investigation where six teachers ended up resigning or retiring because of uh, improper uh, discussion on a Zoom call and an inappropriate, it wasn't it was a photo of a t- uh, student that a teacher had on the phone. It wasn't an inappropriate photo, but it existed. So anyway, those there, all could have played in. Is there kind of a seething underground, under the surface, racist kind of movement going on in the suburbs I, on the west side? I mean, for Tom Zawistowski to, to target Rocky River, and I guess they called in the Bay Village, too, even though they don't vote on this tax, um, it, it, they must see something there. So, So they're trying to foster that those seeds of hate and race baiting to to fire up the electorate maybe to help get rid of uh, congressman anthony gonzalez i mean why why would a tea party screwball be investing money and time in trying to rile up voters in rocky river I, I, that is a very good question. I would love to get to the bottom of it. Um, Cameron Fields, our reporter, uh, did a really good job kind of trying to dig into this. Didn't get a hold of Zawistowski. There's a local realtor who signed the petition who um, said she would get back to him. So maybe we'll find out some more. I don't know where this is coming from. But you're on the Facebook groups out there, right? Do you see this kind of you know, the coded messages where where people are believing this stuff? The one Facebook message I saw about the robocalls, it was everybody basically saying, what is this guy doing? Stay out of our um, school election. But, you know, it's not like everybody's on Facebook and not everybody's going to tell you exactly what they're thinking or how they're going to vote. Can I... Can I, was, I, I well, go ahead. I'm sorry, Chris. I, I always thought of Rocky River as priding itself on being a welcoming community. And this is the polar opposite of that. Well, and again, it wasn't a, I mean, yes, the petition is signed by Rocky. I haven't seen the petition. It's apparently not a public record, but the letter was that we got. But yeah, I mean, maybe it's taking this Portage County Tea Party guy to rile up the people. I mean, these are people that I don't, I don't talk to. I've never felt that way. I felt that Rocky River is incredibly welcoming, but it is not as diverse as some, obviously some communities on the east side. Layla Tassi. I have a third theory about the failure of this of this levy. And Laura, you tell me what you think. I have noticed a lot. So I live in Bay Village. I've noticed a lot on Facebook. I've noticed a lot of underground resentment toward the school district regarding all things related to the pandemic. <laughs> really? Yes. I mean, even though kind of up front, everyone's like, we love our teachers and thank you for everything. And you made this year so, you know. Um, it, I, I have felt, and a lot of people pulling their kids out, putting them into the private Catholic school, um, trying to put them into schools where they weren't experiencing so much back and forth between e-learning and, uh, in-person school and, and 
I've just noticed a lot of of resentful comments directed toward the the school board and uh, the superintendent um, regarding just the decisions that were made around the pandemic. And I have wondered, you know, would we have faced that kind of failure at the ballot box if we had a levy uh, up right now, if people were so, you know, so angered by what they perceived as, you know, poorly handled pandemic response in some cases. Did, That's did you really interesting? I haven't I haven't heard that here, but um, to add to the more theories, we got an email from a listener last week who said it had a lot to do with maybe the timing of it. And you know, we I think Chris talked about it last week about putting it on in May gets people. It doesn't get the people who or would just kind of go to the ballot and say, "Oh, okay," but just get passions on both sides that that maybe there is something with people resenting you having a special election. Like if you're going to do this in an off time, I'm going to come out and vote against you. Mm. I don't know. I do wonder though if the the city leaders um, would be it'd be a smart move to try and tap into whatever the sentiments are. I, I mean, you don't want to become known as a place that is hostile to diversity. I mean, that's what Parma went through for years and years. That's a horrible label. And if there are people that are taking what Zawistowski is feeding them and fostering that, that's bad for the, for the community. It's stupid to buy into. And I would think if you were the mayor or the council there, you'd say, we might have a problem. Let's, let's, let's work on this. Let's have right, some like, let's get it before, right. Yeah. Before, hall. before you start to have this reputation. And it's a, that's a scary thing. That's an interesting theory, Layla. I think you're probably right. Um, families that had to spend money to put their kids into private school because the school district wasn't serving them exactly as they wanted, probably were annoyed. I think the, the people who wanted a justification for not voting yes in Rocky River could use that teacher scandal as the reason. Uh, it is interesting that they voted down one in 2012 uh, that was before we really had come out of the Great Recession. So That's people true. were probably feeling a little bit tight. Anyway, interesting, interesting factors all. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are families of many federal prisoners awaiting trial in Northeast Ohio about to have a much more difficult time visiting them? Leila Tassi, this is the, the kind of the unforeseen consequences of a, of a decision by the Biden administration that's a good decision but mm -hmm. it's going to make life more difficult for some people. Right. And not just the families of, of the inmates, but the, the lawyers who are representing them. So the federal marshals are moving 350 inmates from a pretrial detention facility in Northeast Ohio to a holding center five hours away in Pennsylvania. And 250 other inmates will also kind of shift around the state too, to different facilities all because the federal government is ending its contract with CoreCivic, which is a private prison company that houses defendants awaiting trial in Youngstown. And like you said, this stems from President Joe Biden's plan to end the use of private prison companies because he doesn't believe in, in profiting from incarceration. But defense lawyers are complaining about the inconvenience when it comes to meeting with and preparing with clients and, and how that affects the quality of their representation. And I'm sure this is also a problem for families wishing to visit their loved ones in the detention facilities too. County and city jails used to house these inmates and the federal dollars to house them would help pay the bills for the jails. But, you know, we all know what happened at the county jail back in 2018 with all sorts of civil rights violations and understaffing and overcrowding. So 
that arrangement really fell apart. Uh, officials said the the inmates who are held in Pennsylvania would be brought to Northeast Ohio based on scheduling of their hearings. And they'll spend a week here in a local jail where they can attend any hearings and meet with their attorneys. And at the end of the week, they'll return to Pennsylvania. So that's going to be the new arrangement. And uh, it'll inconvenience quite a few people and and potentially, you know, affect the the quality of their represent their legal representation. So yeah, I, mean, I believe a lot of these cases are immigration cases where the people aren't accused of anything violent. I, I thought the result of this might be letting people go home and wait their hearings that way, but no such, no such luck. They're going to keep them locked up. They're just going to put them further out where people have a hard time seeing them. It's a, it's a, it's a shame that it's got to go that way, but you're right. The, the amount of jail space in Cuyahoga County has been diminished. So there's no way to, to keep them here. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Wow. I thought we were going to get through all of our stories today and we didn't even come close. Rocky uh, River was very, very passionate. <laughs> yeah, that was a good, good discussion. So we'll save some of these for another day. It's good stuff to talk about. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with another discussion of the news. 